Oh God, it's that truth that compels us, compelled by the love of Christ. Our lives changed forever. Because of the night, love was born. What's that mean for us now? Unpack it, dear God, these moments that we have left. Let it be clear. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you noticed that we can grow up hearing a story and end up never hearing the story? I was telling our guests uh, who joined us for our Messiah sing-along this last Sunday. Beautiful, beautiful service, thanks to Jeannie Peterson-Smith and her sanctuary choir. So we have the sing-along, we had guests, and I, said, I told them a story about a, a little teacher. On the last day of class before Christmas, she said, all right, boys and girls, we're going to draw. Everybody draw a picture of Christmas, okay? So those little heads bent over with paper and crayons and they began to scribble and color. And a few minutes, moments later, the, the teacher's walking up and down the rows admiring, ooh, Mary, very nice. I recognize the three wise men. Good. That's good. Ooh, Johnny, snowman, lovely, lovely. Sue, the manger, I could tell it. She stopped by Jimmy's desk because she said, Jimmy, you, you, you missed the point. It's, it's supposed to be a Christmas picture. You've drawn a picture of a jet plane with three people on it and somebody in the front. Jimmy said, but teacher, this is a Christmas picture. This is Joseph and Mary and the Christ child on their flight to Egypt. The teacher said, but, but, but who's, who's the one up front? She, he said, that's Pontius the Pilot. <laughs> Have you noticed, not just kids, but as adults, we can grow up, grow up hearing the story, but never end up really hearing the story. That's the case, perhaps, with today's story from Luke chapter 2. Our Christmas homily is entitled, The Christmas Robe, A Meditation on the Swaddling Cloths. Open your Bible to Luke 2. Luke 2, the sisters Angela and Sinagugu just read these words with us. We go back to them. Luke chapter 2, I want to pick it up in verse 4. I'm in the New King James Version. Verse 4, Joseph also, because Caesar Augustus said, yo, everybody go to your... They think probably King Herod softened it up for the Jews because they're big on genealogy. This is, you're going to get taxed out of this in Roman and census, but there's, he's softening it up. So they all got to go to their hometown. So Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. Verse 5, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, a feeding trough, because there was no room for them in the inn. The great early 20th century English poet, William Butler Yeats, wrote a dark bitterly self-critiquing poem not long before he died, title of the poem, The Circus Animal's Desertion. 
The poem ends with these words. No study guide today, so I just you need to follow along. So I'll put it on the screen for you. It ends with these words. Now that my ladder's gone, I must lie down where all the ladders start, in the foul rag-and-bone shop of the heart. Did you get that? Now that my ladder's gone, I must lie down where all the ladders start, in the foul rag-and-bone shop of the heart. It's rather curious, is it not, that the Son of God is born in the very same place Yates and you and I were born, all of us. It isn't very pretty at the beginning if you can see somehow beneath the glistening skin of an infant. What's inside? Not so pretty. Yates describes the content of this foul shop with these words. These appear just before the words we just read. You see them on the screen. A mound of refuse or the sweepings of a street, old kettles, old bottles and a broken can, old iron, old bones, old rags, that raving slut who keeps the till in the foul rag and bone shop of the heart. It does seem rather curious that the Son of God would be born where Yates and you and I have been born, doesn't it? Isaiah, the ancient gospel prophet, he wrote it this way. Familiar words, three sentences, I'll run them by you. First sentence, Isaiah 7, 14, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted means God with us. Here's the second sentence, Isaiah 64, verse 6, But we are all like an unclean thing, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. One more line, Isaiah 53, verse 6, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, her own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. I must lie down where all the latter start in the foul, rag-and-bone shop of the heart. There Christ was born. We just read it, verse 7, And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Desire of Ages puts it this way, There is no room for them at the crowded inn in a rude, a foul, in a rude building where the beasts are sheltered, they at last find refuge, and here the Redeemer of the world is born. Where? In the foul rag-and-bone shop of the heart. That's where He's born. Born in our rags, so that one day we might be dressed in His robe. Can you believe that? Our rags for His robe. His robe for our rags. That would be the greatest gift exchange in all time in history. Our rags for His robe. If you notice, we can grow up hearing a story and never quite end up hearing the story. Now that my ladder's gone, I must lie down where all ladders start in the foul rag-and-bone shop of the heart. It's where we all began, Christ and you and me, the eights.
And tragically, it's where too many of us, like Yates, end up, still in that shop. On the 75th anniversary of his death, The Atlantic magazine ran a critique of Yeats' three last poems. Indulge me by letting me put the, all the words, just a few sentences here, but I need you to just get them by seeing as well as hearing. And so we'll put the words on the screen. There's no other way you can read it. Here, here are some selected sentences. Seventy-five years ago today, on January 28, 1939, William Butler Yeats died at a boarding house on the French Riviera. He was 73 years old, at the height of his fame and glory. According to the New York Times, Mr. Yates frequently let his mind roam far afield in the realm of fancy, gushed the obituary, and it is for the gentle beauty of such works that he was hailed by many as the greatest poet of his time in the English language. The critique goes on, but there was no gentle beauty in the three poems by Yeats that appeared in The Atlantic in January 1939, the month the poet died. All of them are brutal pieces of deathbed reckoning. In The Circus Animal's Desertion, which we've been reading, the poet mocks his entire career as a writer. My circus animals were all on show, he writes, bitterly describing how he tried and failed to live up to his purest visions. By the end, he's lying in a garbage pit filled with broken, hideous things. Now that my ladder's gone, I must lie down where all the ladders start in the foul rag and bone shop of the heart. The, the crit critic goes on, all these years later, the three poems are still, still deeply unsettling. After all, Yeats was a Nobel Prize winner, an Irish senator, and a co-founder of his country's national theater. If a man like that could look back on a lifetime of accomplishments and chalk them up to empty vanity, vanity, vanity. Another gifted man, didn't he write somewhere, vanity, vanity, everything is vanity? If a man can chalk it all up to empty vanity, what hope is there for everyone else?" End quote. A rather, a rather bleak assessment of the human heart, isn't it? I mean, your heart and mine. The truth is, you stare long enough at any of us, and you will be bitterly disappointed, for there's no Savior among us. There is nobody here who can heal me of my foul, rag-and-bone shop of the heart, which is precisely, I remind you, why Christ was born, wasn't He? You remember these? Matthew 1, 21, the angel of Joseph and she shall bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. You remember this from the gospel prophet again, Isaiah 1. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Remember these words from the Apocalypse, Revelation chapter 3, verse 18. Red-letter words, the risen Christ child. I counsel you to buy from me white garments, that you may be clothed, and that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. There it is, the greatest gift exchange in all of time and history, in a familiar old story we read forever. Our rags for His robe, His robe for our rags in the foul 
rag and bone shop of the heart. He was born in swaddling rags that we might, one day might be clothed in a white stainless robe, our rags for His robe. <laughs> Tell you what, I, I can't imagine the good news getting any much better than this. Can you? You remember that morality tale that some obscure prophet scribbled down at God's command about the spiritual leader in that faith community? being exposed for who he is, dressed in filthy rags. You remember that one? Dressed in filthy rags. And there was a dark accuser standing right beside that leader. The Hebrew calls him the Satan, the prosecuting accuser, the Satan who hisses at the being on the throne that this man is so foul and miserably guilty that there is no hope for him, to which the being on the throne, quite contrary to proper convention, calls out, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? And then God turns to those around His throne, and He speaks these words, Zechariah chapter 3, verse 4, on the screen. Then God answered and spoke to those who stood before Him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from Him, and to Him, the, the fallen one, He said, See, I have removed your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with rich robes, our rags for His robes, our rags for that robe. <laughs> I don't suppose this Christmas there could be a gift exchange greater than this. Our rags for His robe. So I want to end. I want to end with a quotation from Cameron Schofield, then steps to Christ, and then I have a story I want to read to you. First, Cameron Schofield, his book, Heralding the Loud Cry, summarizes this stunning gift exchange. Ah, oh, look at this. Put it on the screen, please. Man fell. The, the human race fell. He came to this posi position. We came to this position where he, where we could not do anything right, but God wanted to save the human race. Could God change His law in order to save man? If he, was, if he was to change His law, He would have to change Himself. He would have to cease being God. So He could not change His law. Instead, God so loved man that He, Jesus, entered into the very man Himself, and in man and as man fulfilled the law. Behold, Cameron writes, what manner of love that God would do this. So every individual who will believe this, has a life before God that is completely sinless. Jesus' perfect life, yours. I tell you what, this notion of exchanging my filthy rags for His beautiful robe, it just, it's a great metaphor, but I can't figure it out. I mean, what do you do? How do, I, how do I get this off, and how do I put that on? Cameron says, no, 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 it's not that. Think of it another way. It's the Christ child born in that trough who grew up to be a young adult and then under the brutal 24-7 assault of the Satan clung with a radical faith to his father.
night and day, and hammered out in the forge and the crucible of this earthly existence, hammered out a, a spotless and perfect life. Here's what it is. It's not, you know, robes and rags. It's that life. That life becomes, if you wish, the life God sees when He looks at you. God says, when I look at you, when I think of you, I see His perfect life as your perfect life. If you want, if you say amen to my offer, you got it just like that. If you say amen, I want it. You can have these rags. I don't know what kind of 2016 you are leaving behind, but there isn't a soul here proud of what's happened this year. Not a soul. I can't think of a better day than today to say in your heart, not to anybody seated beside you, but to say to the one who is hovering right over you right now, to whisper to him, I give you this year. I give you my rags. I take your perfect life. I say amen to your robe, your Christmas robe. I say amen. I receive it. And just like that, you have it. Buy from me without money white garments to hide your nakedness. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm telling you, it doesn't get any better than this that I can think of. Steps to Christ, and then the story. So here's this quotation. Oh, I hope you jot the reference down. By the way, if you don't have a Steps to Christ right now and you're watching on live streaming or you're watching on television, I got a deal for you. You call this number. Nobody knows that I was going to do this, so there's no number going on the screen. Maybe they'll get it by the time it's over. You call 1-877. That's a toll-free number for you. 1-877-HIS-WILL. The two words, His Will. You ask for Steps to Christ. You saw it here, and we'll send it to you, our gift. The book is yours. You've got to have the book. Turn my life completely upside down. Anyway, this is Steps of Christ, page 62. Put the words on the screen. Since we are sinful, unholy, talking about filthy rags, we cannot perfectly obey the holy law. We have no righteousness of our own with which to meet the claims of the law of God. Are you kidding? We can't obey the law of God. We can't even obey the laws of the land. Don't look to me. I'm a rebel at heart. And so are you, every single one of us. Powerless to change our foul rag and bone shop of the heart. But God says, give me, give me your heart. Keep reading. Steps of Christ continues. But Christ has made a way of escape for us. He lived on earth amid trials and temptations such as we have to meet. But He lived a sinless life. He died for us. And now He offers to take our sins and give us His righteousness. I'm telling you what, ladies and gentlemen, there is no greater gift exchange in time or history than that exchange. Give me your life for 2016. Give me your life, and I will give you my perfect life I lived out for you. Right now. My filthy rags for his stainless, sinless life. One more line. Gets only better. Keeps getting better. If you give yourself to Christ and accept him as your Savior, 
then sinful as your life may have been in 2016, for his sake you are accounted righteous. Christ's character stands in place of your character and you are accepted before God just as if you had not sinned in 2016. I'm telling you, it doesn't get any better than this. It can't get any better than this. You got it. Say amen in your heart, and you have it. You have it. Just as if you had not sinned. Oh, my. When God looks at us, He sees our perfect and beautiful Savior instead. Wow. My rags for his robe, his robe for my rags, the Christmas robe, for all who want it. No, no, no. For all who want him. That's how it works. Now I end with a story. It's a beautiful story. I remember the first time I read this story. <laughs> I have the actual magazine right here. My, my parents subscri subscribe for Karen and me. Uh, Guidepost magazine. You have to be... An old person to remember Guidepost magazine, but you remember Guidepost, okay. So this story appeared. I'm four months out of the seminary. Four months, young pastor. Published in Guidepost magazine. Written by Dinah Donahue. Title of the story, Trouble at the Inn. Here we go. For years now, whenever Christmas pageants are talked about in a certain little town in the Midwest, someone is sure to mention the name of Wallace Perling. Wally's performance in one annual production of the Nativity play has slipped into the realm of legend. But the old-timers who were in the audience that night never tire of recalling exactly what happened. Wally was nine that year, and in the second grade, though, though he should have been in the fourth, most people in town knew he had difficulty in keeping up. He was big and clumsy, slow in movement and mind. Still, Wally was well-liked by the other children in his class, all of whom were smaller than he. Well, the boys had trouble hiding their irritation when Wally would ask to play ball with them or any other game, for that matter, in which, in which winning was important. Most often, they'd find a way to keep him out, but Wally would hang around anyway, not sulking, just hoping. He was always a helpful boy, a willing and smiling one, and the natural protector, paradoxically, of the underdog. Sometimes if the older boys chased the younger ones away, it would always be Wally who'd say, Hey, can't they stay? Come on, they're no bother. Wally fancied the idea of being a shepherd with a flute in the Christmas pageant that year, but the play's director, Miss Lombard, assigned him to a more important role. After all, she reasoned, the innkeeper did not, did not have too many lines, and Wally's size would make his refusal of lodging to Joseph more forceful. And so it happened that the usual large partisan audience gathered for the town's yearly extravaganza of crooks and crash, of beards and crowns and halos, and a whole stage full of squeaky voices. No one on stage or off was more caught up in the magic of the night than Wallace Perley. They said later he stood in the wings and watched the performance with such fascination that from time to time Miss Lombard had to make sure he didn't wander on stage before his cue. Then the time came when Joseph and Mary appeared, slowly, Joseph tenderly guiding Mary to the door of the inn. Joseph knocked hard on the wooden door set into the painted backdrop. Wally, the innkeeper, was there waiting. What do you want? Wally said, swinging the door open with a brusque gesture. We seek lodging. Seek it elsewhere. Wally looked straight ahead but spoke vigorously. The inn is filled. 
sir. We have, we have asked everywhere in vain. We have traveled far and are very weary. There is no room in this inn for you. Wally looked properly stern. Oh, please, good innkeeper. This is my wife, Mary. She's heavy with child. She needs a place to rest. Surely you must have some small corner for her. She is so tired. And now, for the first time, the innkeeper relaxed his stiff stance, and he looked down at Mary. And with that, there was a long pause, long enough to make the audience a bit tense with embarrassment. No, be gone, the prompter whispered from the wings. No, Wally repeated automatically, be gone. Joseph sadly placed his arm around Mary, and Mary laid her head upon her husband's shoulder, and the two of them started to move away. The innkeeper did not return inside his inn, however. Wally stood there in the doorway, watching the forlorn couple. His mouth was open, his brow creased with concern, his eyes filling unmistakably with tears. And suddenly this Christmas pageant became different from all others. Don't go, Joseph, Wally called out. Bring Mary back. And Wallace Perling's face brightened with a big smile. You can have my room. Some people in town thought that the pageant had been ruined. Yet there were others, many, many others, who considered it the most Christmas of all Christmas pageants they had ever seen. Oh, come to my heart, Lord Jesus. You can have my room. Let's sing it. Let's pray it this Christmas, this Christmas Eve. Oh, come to my heart, Lord Jesus. Jesus.